This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. So NASDAQ out with earnings this week and joining us to talk about that and really the bigger picture of the market environment, the trading environment, is Adina Friedman. She's the CEO of NASDAQ. So nice to have you here with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about the quarter. Um, a little bit of a, it feels like Wall Street reading it as a little bit of a mixed picture. You did have an earnings beat, a little bit light on the revenues. How do you see the quarter? Well, from our perspective, we really focus on organic growth. And in our non-trading businesses, we grew 8% year over year. So we're really pleased with continued progress of our technology business our index and data businesses, as well as the really healthy environment we're seeing for IPOs in our corporate services business. The trading business has some fluctuation in it in terms of just overall volumes and, and impact that we're having in certain parts of our market. We saw that but with the banks, are, right? With the bank's earnings, they all talked about trading. It's less predictable, but at the same time, we're very pleased with the market share we're experiencing in the U.S. equities and options markets, as well as our Nordic equities markets. So from a competitive perspective, we feel very good about our core marketplaces. And at the same time, we manage through different environments that, that operate there. But in our non-trading businesses, that's where we're really driving for growth, and we're experiencing that, and we're very pleased with that. And so talk to us about the market technology business, especially, because that's something people are keeping a very close eye on. What are the drivers underneath there? Sure. Well, we actually just came out with a new metric called um, ARR that we launched this quarter that really shows you the recurring revenue streams and looking at kind of how we look at our, our growth of our recurring revenue in that business. Market technology today, we provide provide the technology that powers 130 other markets around the world. And we also provide market monitoring technology for 150 broker-dealer firms. So it's becoming a very scaled business for us. We're investing heavily in growth in that business. So in terms of generating, uh, creating a new uh, next-gen system, technology system to support our clients, moving more towards a platform as a service model, and expanding our market technology implementations beyond just the traditional capital markets into other industry verticals like insurance, um, and in some cases, betting and other things that we've been getting involved well, in. Well, you guys have some news about betting and also getting involved with footballers or footballers, right, in terms of where clients can actually, what, make some bets on them? So we are we are providing the technology to a company called the Football Index. That's a UK-based firm. So football in that parlance means soccer. soccer. <laughs> and um, and basically, the, it allows uh, people to bet on certain players and, and understand. It's almost like fantasy football. Yeah in a betting context, and they've created a marketplace that allows people to essentially buy interest in a player and then watch that player, um, that player's performance and understand kind of what the returns are from that. More deals like that coming, different sports mm-hmm. or different industries in a similar way? Well, we already are in the horse racing business. We have three yeah. racing authorities that right. use our parimutuel betting platform, and we do see that as, a, as an industry vertical that is obviously very relevant to real-time price discovery and, tra- and high, high transaction processing capacity, as well as the potential for more advanced surveillance technology. We actually have Meaning a module. What? Well, what? In our, we have a technology that we provide to the industry, both regulators, uh, exchanges, and market participants that help them monitor mm-hmm. for manipulation and other nefarious behavior in the markets. Well, you can use that same technology in a betting context as well. And we do have a module that we created specifically for sports betting that would allow you to monitor the behaviors of the p- different people who are betting in your platform. Dean, I've got to ask you, because 
when you hear about these sports things, I think, you know, you go back, what, a decade or a couple of decades, we wouldn't have thought the NASDAQ or any exchanges would be getting into this, but it's a different environment. Does that become much more of your business, those kind of new um, platforms, if you will, versus kind of the core marketing, and not core marketing, but core trading? So, I, well, today the trading business, uh, our trading revenue is less, is about 25% of our overall revenue. So it's not 25 that, and 30%, okay. depending on the quarter of our overall revenue. Our recurring revenue streams are the 70 75%. That can come from data and analytics. It can come from our corporate services. And it also comes from market technology. Our technology business, think of us as almost like Switzerland. We can provide that technology to other exchanges. We can provide some of that technology to some of our competitors. Mm-hmm. We provide that technology to markets in very different spaces, not just in the traditional capital markets. And it is the fastest growing part of our business. Does it become the biggest part of your business ultimately? Well, I would love to think of that as an opportunity for us over a very long term. But we obviously have other great parts of our business as well. So when you think about what's out there in terms of potential acquisitions, we've seen a huge amount of consolidation and a lot of mergers and acquisitions across the exchange business broadly defined. More to be done in the short term in terms of buying buying up things? Well, I, I think we... Number one, our, our primary focus is on organic growth, and we do feel very good about how we're delivering on that. But we do find opportunities to make some acquisitions. We recently bought a company called Sonober that helps expand uh, and catalyze more business into the market technology space. Right. Um, we also bought Investment, which is in our data and analytics business, supporting our investment management firms. And we bought Quandle, which is a very small platform, but it's in an interesting space around alternative data. So we do find ways to leverage technology or leverage acquisitions to help execute our strategy. But we have a very defined strategy. So we want to make sure that our primary focus is how we grow our uh, relations with our clients in an organic way, potentially catalyzed with some acquisitions. Where do IPOs fit into all of this? And I think I saw some data point or something that about 80% of new issues actually ended up on the NASDAQ. So tell, tell us about the IPO market, how important that still is to the NASDAQ, and what do you see going forward over the next six to 12 months in terms of activity? Well, the IPOs or the corporate services business is another very important important business to us. So if you think about our business, we're kind of combined. We have four key businesses and corporate services is one. The IPOs in general have done, we've had a great pipeline of companies gone public. Mm -hmm. The performance of the companies are up over 20% so far this year. Um, We've had, we do have an 80% win rate so far this year. So we're extremely excited about that. (laughs) Um, And we've had some great companies choose to come to NASDAQ. Companies like CrowdStrike, Real Real, Zoom Media, Mm -hmm. uh, TradeWeb, something in our own space. There's some really great companies that have been able to tap the public markets this year. And we do see a very healthy pipeline going into the fall. Now, of course, everything's subject to market conditions. But if the markets remain inviting, then you're going to, I think we're going to continue to see some really great companies coming out in the fall. And as you look across that 80% win rate, can you generalize what's getting you the the win? Sure. Well, we tend to uh, do very well in technology, healthcare, and um, actually financial services, interestingly. Hmm. So a lot of those, a lot of community banks come public on NASDAQ, trade web, so some of the more market structure, fintech companies go public on NASDAQ. Um, Healthcare and biotech, we win actually 97% of biotech companies. And and that's been a very, very active market in terms of finding great investor interest in new technologies around healthcare. And then, of course, in the technology space, we compete every day with our competitor down the street, but we do very well in terms of bringing some amazing companies to NASDAQ. What do you make, though, of, there's, we talk so much often 
discussion about whether it's the private equity space, how much money is out there to really fund startup companies that enables them to stay private so much longer? How is that impacting you guys? What, what are you seeing as a result of that? So the, I, I do agree that there is a lot of private money out there and companies have a lot of choice. They can mm-hmm. make, they can choose to stay private longer. They can choose to tap um, more investors than they ever have before in the private space. We actually have something called the Nasdaq private market that helps those right. companies manage the liquidity in a private context. But of course, we'd much rather see companies tap the public markets as soon as they feel they're ready. And the reason is, if you think about it, in the private markets, about it's, it's, it's a concentrated investor base that tends to focus on the top of the economic scale. Whereas if you bring companies into the public markets, you're giving every person in the world really an access to be able to be an investor in that. And if you look at the stats, well over 50% of the population in the United States are invested in equities directly or indirectly. So you do want more of those companies to come out and allow um, those hardworking people in America to be able to invest in these growth companies while they're still growing. But do you see growth in your private, the Nasdaq private market? Do you see more and more companies coming in wanting to kind of stay there for a while? Yeah, we did have a, a record number of programs in the first half of this year with right. 35 liquidity programs in the first half. I believe that about over $2 billion tran- transferred um, in secondary transactions that are company-sponsored tenders. Uh, so we only we work with the companies to make sure that they manage their liquidity as they want to. We are also starting to see them using price discovery. So we do auctions now to, mm-hmm. to find the right price for those trades. We help introduce them to new potential buyers. So we're expanding our presence in the private markets because it is the reality of the situation. Right. But at the end of the day, we, we do believe that the, the right thing over time is for, these co- for the average investor to be able to come in and invest in these companies too. You mentioned uh, competition down the street. There are also you know upstarts coming in all the time. IEX, of course, gets a lot of uh, headlines, of course. Other names are out there. What do you see? Where do you see the most competition coming from? Well, I think it's good to level set everyone's understanding of the competitive landscape and U.S. equities trading. So you're specifically talking about U.S. equities markets. And today we have their 13 exchanges that are uh, that are owned by four different exchange groups, as well as about 40 other right. non-exchange venues that trade U.S. equities. We compete every day um, every for every single order that comes into our market. And every exchange trades every state. Stock. So where you list isn't necessarily where you trade right. anymore. So it's a very, very competitive, a very competitive landscape. In terms of new competitors coming in, then they're coming into a pretty crowded field, um, yeah. and so we always look at where we take every new competitor seriously and understanding what are they trying to do to differentiate themselves, and then how might we be able to make sure that we're meeting those client needs or exceeding them so that we remain we remain as strong as we are. We have about twenty percent market share in U.S. equities, and that is. Um, a great position to be in, as you, if you look at the overall competitive landscape, and we want to make sure we continue to catalyze growth in our market share over time. What do you make of Bitcoin? Well, cryptocurrencies are a really interesting new phenomenon, I would say, that's hit the world. And I, you're starting to see them go through these cycles of maturing, mm-hmm. but I still think it's a very immature sector. It's an unregulated sector for the most part. I mean, there are certain parts of the world that are trying to bring more regulatory oversight into the markets. I think that it's um, it's a it's a construct that has been hard for people in the tangible world to grasp. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're starting to see some more interesting applications of crypto in terms of trying to find stable coins. So we're actually invested in a company called USC, where they're creating a stable coin 
bank to facilitate interbank transfers with the central bank. Mm-hmm. And so those are some really interesting ways to use the constructs of, of uh, cryptocurrencies to some real-life practical applications. And then, of course, there's Libra, which is right. more of a consumer right. finance and a consumer Did, when that like commerce came type out, of... And Dina, about Facebook, because I always think about there are certain, especially the big tech companies, all of a sudden they do something and everybody wakes up. And I, I don't mean it like that. I know everybody's been looking at it, but it makes you look at it differently because they can be very aggressive, some of these big tech companies. How did that change the conversation with Facebook saying, here's what we want to do? Well, it's interesting. Well, first of all, what I really like about the Libra construct is that even though Facebook came up with the concept, they're trying very hard to make it so it's not the Facebook cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. right? So it's a, it's right now they have 28 firms of an equal interest. And what they're trying to do is get at least 100 companies to have an interest in Libra equal and make it so that there's no one has any, um, any outsized vote. Mm-hmm. So it really does become what I would call a true community type of currency. It is meant for consumer uh, commerce, but it also, as we look at, as we talked about before, the technology and how our technology applies applies into new markets and new industry verticals, you know, you could look at something like a Libra type of stable currency to allow for very, very smooth transfers of, of, mm-hmm. of money, you know, mm-hmm. in the context of a new type of market construct. So it is fun. I do agree with you. It tends to get a lot of attention when some of the larger firms decide to say, you know what, we're ready to step into the space. But because it also forces everyone to wake up and say, well, what does that mean in terms of regulatory oversight? What does right. that mean in terms of fairness? How is this going to impact the average consumer on the street? And at that point, I think the government uh, rightfully starts to look at it and say, well, how do we make sure we're getting involved appropriately to make sure this is safe? I don't think that there's been a ton of involvement from the government, in the U.S. at least so far. Mm -hmm. But now I think that they're starting to recognize the need for them to get more engaged. It did feel like the Libra announcement and the hearings on Capitol Hill in the recent weeks have spurred a level of debate and conversation that maybe we haven't had to date. Yeah, I, I think that it's been an interesting education, honestly, yeah. for a lot of lawmakers to understand, because as I said, it's hard for people in the tangible world to kind of understand the yeah. construct. But at the same time, I think it's also recognized, people recognize that there are practical applications of this technology that can create a much smoother global commerce structure, mm-hmm. both at the consumer level, but also at the institutional level. And so that's where I think people are getting pretty interested. From a trading perspective, you guys have talked, though, I think, about Bitcoin futures. Right, we we have had you on that project. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that uh, as you can see with the Bitcoin futures, it's been an interesting. it's been an interesting exercise as we've been looking at, well, what's the real demand for that? Mm. How would you construct an index that you feel very confident in the price discovery that's occurring in the underlying exchanges? So that, that to me, is the biggest issue, is making sure that when you are taking prices from exchanges that trade Bitcoin, do you feel confident in the price discovery that they're creating? So do they have the right market oversight, as right. we talked about? Are they creating a fair market experience for everyone? And so therefore, and are they protecting themselves to make sure that they have a lasting business? And those things, I think, are really important to to look at. So when we uh, started to look at how would we construct a future off of an index, the index, therefore, we looked at all the exchanges and said, well, we would feel more confident in using their pricing information if they were, frankly, using portions of our technology to underpin their their market surveillance and things like that. At the same time, we also just found that there wasn't a lot of incremental demand Mm -hmm. over on top of what had already been created. So rather than launch one ourselves right now, we've actually invested in a company 
called ErisX. They are launching a, future, a futures exchange later this year. They already have a spot market, and they are also looking at physical delivery. And I think all, for all of those reasons, we think that's an interesting construct. Interesting. All right. Good. So let's talk about your tenure as CEO of the NASDAQ and shift the conversation a little bit about three years uh, into the top job. What how do you think you've made your mark sort of culturally uh, on the place? This is a, a, a very familiar venue for you. You've been in and out, uh, did a little tour of private equity where you and I first met. Uh, what do you make of the, your first three years sort of with your cultural imprint? Well, I think the the great thing is I inherited a company that was in really good shape. So Bob did a wonderful job of managing the business. So when I got to get... Robert Greifeld, right? Bob Greifeld, our former CEO. So when I took the reins of the company, I got to focus on opportunity and not as much risk, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, some companies, come, you know, CEOs come in and they it's really nice have way to, to focus start, right? on a turnaround. And I then, I really got an opportunity just to say, well, how are we really optimizing the opportunities that we have in front of us? I think that we've done a very nice job of creating a great marketplace for equities, for options in the U.S. and the Nordics. I think where we have great opportunity to continue to grow is in our technology and our data businesses. I ran the data business for nine years when I was at NASDAQ earlier in my career, so I'm very familiar with that part of the business, and I do see huge opportunity for us to catalyze growth there. So I wanted to make sure that from a cultural perspective, we were really, really focusing on the holistic client experience. What are all the ways that we can serve our clients where they see us as the natural provider? And where are they taking their businesses over the next 10 years so that we can stay ahead of their needs? That really was a bit of a cultural shift Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking that long term. I think the second thing is that culturally also, I wanted to build more, a little bit more collaboration across the, the different business units. Each one of them has very much their own focus and their own P&Ls, but the opportunity to serve our clients really cuts across multiple business units together. So we started doing a lot more collaboration. In providing broker-dealer technology, we leveraged our our relationships with the markets business to say, well, we are a great market for you, but you also run your own trading systems. Could we also provide the technology mm-hmm. around your trading systems? And that's open doors. So a lot of examples where we've been able to cross the silos and create more opportunity for NASDAQ, but also for our customers. Well, it sounds like somebody who worked at a private equity firm, right? <laughs> no, but you're able to kind of, like, no, you oversee a lot of different companies. What I find fascinating is you were at the NASDAQ. NASDAQ. You started as an intern. You were there for, was it 18? No, 11 years? 18 years? I was there for 17 years before I went to Carlisle. I mean, that's a long time. So talk to us about that experience. Go back to when you were an intern and then what you've seen in terms of what's changed in the market environment. Yeah, a lot has changed. So I started at NASDAQ in 1993. There's still paper, right? Or, well, the NASDAQ's uh, always been electronic. We've always been electronic. But but I started at NASDAQ in 1993 as an intern in the trading business. So I was able to look at the trading as a technology. And we, I was a product manager. So you'd say, a well, product manager at NASDAQ. Well, we really were, it was trading products that we were delivering to our clients in an electronic way. So I was a, put in charge early in my career of some very small kind of sidelined trading products and data products. And I was able to make the most of them and to show that they had, you know, if we could apply new technologies, we could do great things. And that gave me the opportunity then to run the data business. But at the time, we were just a U.S. equities market. Right. Mm-hmm. Today, we're a global technology company that serves 130 other markets. Markets, but also, we are a U.S. options and equities and futures and treasuries market, and we're now a European equities, options, and futures market. So it's a we've expanded dramatically. I was very lucky to be part of that as head of corporate strategy when we were going through this big M&A expansion effort. 
But now we have this great franchise and we have so much organic opportunity to grow the business. So that's where we're really focusing our energy. One of the cool things about your job, I would imagine, is you're talking to CEOs all the time. You're talking to your customers who are, you know, at interesting points in their company's careers, maybe their own careers. What's advice or or insight that you've picked up as, as you've come along, especially over the last three years when you're speaking sort of like boss to boss? Yeah, well. The the first thing I would say is complacency is the killer of every great company. And anytime mm-hmm. you see a company to start to think that they're at the top of the world, that's when you know that there's going to be that they're going to start to go downhill instead of uphill. <laughs> um, our job is to make sure we're always always focused on the next opportunity, and we're never complacent around any part of our operation. And I think that we did. I would say Nasdaq did have a period of complacency in the late '90s and early into 2000. We we had a lot of regulatory change that hit us and we didn't recognize it and we got we had a real drop in market share as a result of that. So I think that on the back of that, I lived through that period and I then watched Bob come in and take every single day as a new day to say, what are we going to do today for our customers? Mm. What are we going to do today to grow the business? And that's the attitude that I love. And so the advice is always make sure that you make the most of every day. You can't sit still for a day and just kind of look back, you know, kind of sit back and say everything's going to be fine. You say, no, what am I going to do to drive the business forward today? Um, And also, I think for young people is to really make sure that they make the most of their experience wherever they are. You might be given a project Mm -hmm. that you don't really like. But if you do that project extremely well, you may not realize it at the time, but you will be recognized for it. Mm. If you do that project poorly, you'll also be noticed for that, too. So plowing through those hard projects that you don't like so much, but doing a great job at them will get you noticed for the next thing. And the next thing will be a lot more interesting. It's a great piece of advice. What company or individual do you admire and why? Well, I think that Satya Nadella is doing a spectacular job of running Microsoft. And I think what he took was a business that did have a level of complacency in parts of its business, but I also had an amazing franchise. And he's done an amazing job of transitioning the culture, but taking um, and making the most of the opportunity that they have and really pivoting the business towards tech and data in a way that I think is really, really admirable. And he also just has a great respond. style. I mean, yeah. just has a great style about him. He's so humble. Yeah. Um, He's he's never complacent. He's always talking about the next thing that they need to do. He's extremely approachable. He'll meet with all of his clients. I just I find that he has all those great characteristics. So if you weren't doing this, running the Nasdaq, what would you be doing? Um, I had a child ambition to be an astronaut. Now, whether oh. or not I would be is a very different question. <laughs> right. But I did get to meet an astronaut last week for the Apollo 11 50th anniversary. No kidding. Jeanette Epps. Yeah. So I said, yeah. so how did you get into becoming an astronaut? And of course, she gave me the answer that I knew would be the hard one, which is, oh, I majored in physics. And then I did, <laughs> then I did aerospace. as a, I have a PhD in aerospace. I'm like, OK, well, that's definitely a, a road that would have been um, a challenge. But it's it's exciting to think about what the space program is doing yeah. these days. It, it is, is really, really exciting. And should be continued. Absolutely. She, I mean, they're looking to go to the moon in the next five years, but then obviously to get on to Mars. And what's really great is to see all the private investment in space coupled with NASA. That's that's what's going to catalyze it, I think. I don't think we can end any better than that. Perfect. Adina Friedman, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you Pleasure. very much. That's NASA CEO Adina Friedman. This is Bloomberg.